Welcome to WebNIP Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. WebNIP Windows is a monthly show featuring WebNIP perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, our guest is Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. Well, welcome to the show, Kirk. Thank you. Um, so, you haven't been here for a while. Yeah, what? Two weeks, maybe. Was it <laughs> longer than that? Um, so, I think we were talking about uh, the river case mm-hmm. the last time. Is there any uh, updates on that? Yeah. So, there's been uh, a lot of activity in the in the appeal process um, in, in the last few months. Um, some interesting stuff has taken place. Uh, you know, the tribe, I think. Um, was really put in a position from that decision to not have a lot of choices, but to um, to appeal some of that um, decision that was extremely confusing. As you know, they talked a lot about our sustenance fishing rights and, and then were just really unclear in the decision where that leaves us with hunting, trapping, taking of wildlife and the associated authorities, more importantly, around the protection of the sustenance um, resources. So. So the tribe appealed on those bases, and um, and ironically, the the state and the interveners have cross appealed in the case. Um, basically, and it's not a huge surprise, but I think that um, they base their appeal on two different um, subjects, and one is um, they're challenging the federal government in the case. With, what? I don't. Well, like, what's what's interesting is we should be challenging their standing in the case. Well, well, this is the thing. You know, we challenged you know the interveners standing in the case early on and often. Um, you know, many of the uh, first of all, we we didn't think this case, and we know this case had nothing to do with regulation of discharges. Um, but secondly, you know, a majority of those interveners weren't even in the geographical location of the um, of the case, and many of them downstream. Since then, my understanding is uh, Orono and then the town of Bucksport have pulled out of um, pulled out of the case. So um, they're challenging based on the fact, in their view, as you know, is that um, the tribes don't have the same federal protections as every other tribe in the country, which is ridiculous since how we've been a 638 um, contracting tribe with the federal government for almost 40 years. Um, You don't get to be able to do that. You can't contract with the federal government Mm -hmm. unless they recognize your status. So, yeah. Well, exactly. And, you know, basically what a 638 contract does is um, allows you to self-govern in the role of the federal government. So there's no federal government here running our programs. We're running those ourselves. So we, um, and again, it's almost a treatment of state. So the, um, so it's ridiculous that they've taken this view. They've taken this view for a long time. So they file an appeal saying the court got it wrong in the district court by allowing the federal government to be in the case, which is odd that the United States would get challenged in a United States federal court. But the, uh, um, 
over the protection of federally recognized Indian tribes. So, so that there was that, and now they're challenging the mentioning of a sustenance fishery bank to bank in the main stem, even though, um, they got a lot out of that in terms of under what authority that was going to be under. So, um, so despite the fact they relayed, you know, they would never appeal. Um, they have appealed. And based on those two things, any recognition of a sustenance fishery and also the fact that we're not entitled to the federal government-to-government relationship like normal tribes. So that's a little bit concerning. And so the, um, but, you know, we, we have a really good uh, appeal, we think. And um, so that's all with the First Circuit now. We're waiting on scheduling orders. Um, and we're thinking, you know, mid to late fall, there'll be some action from the court on it. Wow. And it's like, they they just don't give us any sort of uh, room at all. I mean, it's like they want to totally control us. They want to make us mm-hmm. disappear. Um, you know, we, we were meeting in Washington, D.C. last week on um, Settlement Act issues and just basically... Uh, educating Congress on, on these things. And, and um, you know, I think somebody said it best in there, you know, they're just, because if you look at a lot of the things, whether it's petitioning for disaster relief under a certain act or prosecuting offenders under Violence Against Women Act, um, all the kind of practical approaches that put those laws in place to begin with and uh, to create more sound public safety within Indian communities and enhance the protection of territory in a more concise and comprehensive and more practical way. Um, you know, those things are even getting opposed for no reason really, except, you know, they don't want, all it can really be about is they don't want us getting our nose under that tent. And I think they feel like if, uh, if we start to exercise jurisdiction that they feel we don't have, then, um, you know, it's going to parlay into all of this other stuff, which is ridiculous. But I think the, um, you're right. I mean, they, they don't want any recognition of any special tribal rights. Or any tribal rights. Well, that's it. And, um, and these are just, and you're right. These are just normal, um, tribal self-governing rights to protect culture against a whole host of history, um, but also to um, enhance the tribes economically or whatever it is. So these are very normal practices in most places in the country. So you um, you have to wonder what the reasoning is. And, and a lot of this stuff is just to say no. I mean, so there's no good reason for the tribes not to be supported in a lot of these efforts. Well, in my way of thinking about this, I I always think it, it borders on civil rights issues. Well, there are, um, you know, and those are one of the things we're talking about with people is there's a, uh, there certainly is an equal protection issue. And there is, um, you know, we think that, we know that after one evaluation from the international community, I mean, he was in, so when you basically say in a river case that we're going to remove you from that cultural practice and, um, which is so core to the cultural identity of the tribe, um, 
I mean, that's a cultural, you know, it, somehow some of that can fit into the definition of genocide. And so, and so when you, um, and in the modern era with fancy attorneys and courts and all of that, you know, um, it doesn't look as dirty as genocide of the past, but it is clearly um, the same, has the same effect when you um, take away the ability of a tribe to remain a tribe for future generations. So, um, so I think, um, you know, these are very serious things and, um, and we're going to keep highlighting it and working through the court system as long as it takes to try to um, get some resolution. And we think, you know, that um, a more in-depth look into uh, the Settlement Act in general is going to reveal that this is a, an unintended result of what we're living under today. I mean, I, I think we all agree that there was an agreement, whether we agree with the agreement or not, um, there was a settlement act, but I think no one agrees that, um, you know, the tribe just carte blanche gave up their authority to regulate their territory and to protect their culture. And, um, and this was evident by the in-depth discussion around internal tribal matters, um, which I don't think these issues get any more internal to the tri tribe. I mean, I mean, this issue is probably more internal to the tribe than any other issue you'd face, right? These cultural-based issues. But yet they, they fight that it's not, and they bring in all of these uh, moving parts, you know, landowners up and down the river, mills and economics and all of that stuff, and they start saying there's so much effect outside the reservation that... Um, it's not internal to the tribe. And so, so the only way that they can get really us away from our inherent authority in the river is to say the river is not the reservation and to um, also say that these issues aren't internal to the tribe. Yeah, it, it just seems like they're homogenizing us, mm -hmm. blending us into everything so that we just kind of disappear mm -hmm. into the woodwork and into the crowd and into everything else. And, you know, and they've been doing that ever since they became a state. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, again, you know, nobody will use the words, but it's an assimilation Absolutely. policy. And it's, um, and it's basically, I mean, it's not even that subtle if you look at it. I mean, <laughs> what they're not. saying is, yeah. is basically you're going to be like everyone else and you're under state authority just like everyone else. And when you say those things, you're basically saying that, we don't recognize the unique and distinct culture of the Penobscot Nation. So, um, so it's an assimilate. You have a lot of things going on. You have uh, cultural termination actions. You have, you can make an argument around human rights violations, around genocidal acts, and also, um, you know, you have this clear mentality of assimilation there. Yeah, and you know, it, it just seems to me that uh, it's really, really clear what they're trying to do. Um, you know, when you take a the land, main land Claim Settlement Act, that's what it was about, it was land claims. Mm -hmm. But that's not really how, what it's about because it goes far beyond land. Mm -hmm. It goes into every single thing that we do. The law, there's laws that covers everything. Uh, it was just about land. How'd that happen? Well, what happened was once we got forced into the settlement talks, the um, the tribe had been vet 
validated on its claim to two-thirds of the state of Maine. Um, the state really saw it as an opportunity to um, to bring a whole host of other issues into it. Like, So it wasn't a land claims. At that one point, it just stopped being a land claims and, yeah. and a claim on our existence, actually. Well, it was, and it was a, and it was a land claim that got turned into basically the tribe getting permission to buy land back, and secondly, the um, permission to buy our own land mm-hmm. back from the paper companies, right? Yeah. yeah, from paper companies and from it's a well-defined geographical area of where we can purchase those lands and what we can do with them. And, you know, we always say, I guess, Maine's the only state in the country where um, the purchasing of stolen goods is, is legal. But the, but I think that the... Uh, Good one. But I think that, um, you know, so we get through that and, you know, the, you know, there were dozens of congressional changes made without the tribe's knowledge. There was, we still can't find a document where the tribe ratifies anything, Um or what those agreements looked like and, and what the, you know, there was some tribal process, not a lot. Um, matter of fact, I think in the record, it shows early on that the the mindset was this is a legislative action, not a tribal action. So, so I think that, um, you know, the whole thing is, is a flawed experiment, really, and it's proven to be devastating to the tribes here. And I think that... Um, we really got to figure out legally, you know, they'll, they'll constantly throw back in your face, you know, the money involved and all that. But you're talking about 12 million acres of land. Penobscot Nation gets about $41 million in that land claim. And um, what's been the cost of the use of those natural resources and all of that over the years? And what's been the cultural devastation to the tribe from not having access to those territories. So and, I th- and the thing is, you know, the, the land into trust stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, they say, well, you know, we put land into trust and you don't have to pay <clears throat> taxes or if you have territories. Away. But we are paying taxes on those mm-hmm. lands. Yeah, you know, most of our lands, you know, the trust lands are in unorganized territories. That's true. But, you know, the tribe takes on significant land management costs with those. We also do county revenue shares, you know, to utilize county services. We're doing a lot of things that people don't realize to contribute to regions. But the, um, you know, the the other issue is, you know, the tribes, I mean, to be honest with you, tax taxes are a revenue-based mechanism for governments. And, you know, these lands are under tribal government control. I mean, I'm not sure why anybody would think we would pay taxes on those for. But, um, and for the services that do get provided within those territories, we do pay for those. So it's, um, it's a ridiculous argument. But the, um, but I think that, you know, when you look at 12 million acre claim validated by the courts, you end up in this settlement negotiation where we lose all control of the product. Um, and you end up with and it's clear from the very beginning, everybody knew this thing wasn't perfect and there were going to be interpretation problems. Hence, you know, we've talked about this, but hence the creation of Mitzik and a whole host of other things. And so, um, it, but now, you know, it's been interpreted in such a restrictive way for the last 30 years, it's become the norm, right? People think, oh, they can't do that because of the Settlement Act, right? And that's just where everybody starts from. And it's it's crazy because... 
And, you know, when you talk about the land claim, the river, for example, where it says islands, these islands, these islands northward, Milford to, um, they're describing a geographical location in there on a land claim. And they're saying these islands, not those islands, right? They're not saying their existence only exists on those islands. And I find it odd that, um, you know, there is no mention of the Penobscot River in terms of the tribe having any discussion at all about what our rights would be within the river. Um, so, and they'll point to other sections of the of the settlement that says, you know, this transfer language or the land and natural resource um, language and say that applies everywhere. But um, I don't think that it was ever the intention. I think it was these these were conversations around new territory that we were, well, old territory that we were getting back and never included a discussion about what would happen within the reservation. I mean, that yeah, is... we already had that. Right. There was no negotiation about that. So... Yeah. So it's, it's just, a, um, it's gotten to a point in our opinion, you know, with this river case, with trying to get sound water quality, with um, trying to protect the territory, protect our people, um, that it's, um, it's time for uh, Congress really to step in. And we do a lot of work around this um, with the agencies, with federal agencies, Department of Interior, Department of Justice, um, and really take a look at the legislative record on the Settlement Act and get a solid congressional interpretation of, you know, what are the rules here in terms of uh, whatever. And I don't think we'll ever get to a place if we got through that process where anybody would say, you know, this uh, current condition is, is how we anticipated it. Yeah. So we've talked about... Uh, <clears throat> The land claims, and I guess one of the pieces of that land claims is the uh, Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, the in reading a lot of stuff around the creation of the land claims, um, again, it became very clear to everyone that this was very, very complicated. It was um, it was getting pressured by elections and a whole host of things. So everybody knew, even the state negotiators in the 2006 work group process at the Maine State Legislature said, you know, this was an organic document. I mean, everybody knew that. So while we don't always agree with the tribal point of view on this, one thing we do agree with is that um, nobody ever thought this was set in stone. And, you know, that's the mindset the Attorney General's office takes. So What's evidence of that as well is the creation of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission in statute, which said... Let me just ask you this. Is that Maine Indian Tribal State Commission a creature of the federal act or the state implementing act? I think, uh, I think it's uh, a creature of the uh, implementing act. Okay. And it's... Um, but it had... It had its roots in the federal process because they were trying to find a third-party dispute mechanism, mechanism sure. because um, they knew, like I said, that a lot would have to be changed. And so, um, so the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission was was created, and I think a lot of times the mere title of that commission 
gets people thinking that it's an Indian organization, and uh, but it's a state organization. I mean, they're in tribal, and it's appointed half by the governor and half by the tribes, um, and the chair is selected through the legislative process. And so the um, so the um, the idea of Mitzik and it's to continuously monitor the social and economic um, condition of the tribes under the Settlement Act and the state. And when changes and disputes, gray areas take place, um, that's the forum that's supposed to get used. And so... Let me just, I'm just thinking when you said the, the chair was created by the legislative process, if I remember correctly, the state reps and the tribal reps on that commission uh, choose mm -hmm. a chair. They both vote on who they think would be the best uh, the best person to facilitate that mm -hmm. organization. That's true. They get confirmed, though, by yeah. the Senate, I think. Yeah, so there, there is uh, uh, you know, so the it's equally divided between state and tribal representatives. Um, anytime there's ever been an issue that's gone there, for example, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission ruled twice on freedom of access law application to to tribes, saying that you know FOIA is a law to make governments accountable to their people. Those are tribal governments. It's not. They don't govern me, uh, so Public the law doesn't, doesn't vote in our elections. exactly. Yes. So, but the state, you know, took us to court on that issue, uh, along with paper companies. I think it was a state court yeah. on that one. And so, um, and it's that's really been the history. Is anytime there's a dispute, then we should get this legally dealt with, because the inability or or um, unwillingness of the state to make any changes to the document is really I think very calculated I think it's so when we talk about these things like it's hard to understand why this little thing that has no effect on their jurisdiction would be a problem with them I think it's it's really about um, keeping this document as interpretively a mess as you can possibly keep it because In favor of course yeah, well, you, it makes for great court arguments because sure. of the ambiguities. And, you know, if, and, you know, courts, by and large, tend to be very uh, state-right mindset, uh, come mm -hmm. from a state-rights mindset. And um, in these issues, um, the tribe has been really on the bad side of now for 30 years in, in dozen, over a dozen litigation processes. But the ironic thing is that Mitzik was created to decide these gray area issues. That's exactly and right. it wasn't supposed to go to any court. It was supposed to stay within Mitzik, and that would solve the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the issues one way or the other. And if you look even in the federal process, you have the Administrative Procedures Act, right, where, um, where courts will tell you if you're challenging the EPA, for example, on something, or you're challenging a federal agency, the courts will mandate it back to those administrative processes first. And uh, so we're just kind of waiting for a court to say, you have this mechanism, go work it out. 
or to give some deference to the decisions that are made, they're good or bad. But the thing is, you know, any decision, like you said, like the FOIA thing, uh, the legislature paid no attention, mm-hmm. to it, and there's no, there's no teeth in that that uh, mm-hmm. MITSIC organization to, to sort of force them to to carry through with their recommendations. So, you know, the whatever they decide just doesn't get done, and that's the report that was done a while back called mm-hmm. At Loggerheads, where they just were stalemated. Mm-hmm. And I think the, um, what's also interesting is that during the tribal state work group process, this came up a lot. Tribes really were screaming that, look, at the very least, we need to figure out a third-party dispute resolution. You can't always be right. You can't always ask the attorney general of the state to interpret who's right. Um, it doesn't seem fair. You know, we have in-house legal. I mean, do we get to ask them? Exactly. Do we get to get our tribal court to interpret these things? No. So the um, so we need a third. And one of the things that came up in that was a um, federal district court in D.C. Um, handling these disputes. And that was a non-starter. I mean, so so the um, so it just tells you it works great for them. You know, there's no third-party dispute mechanism. There is um, ambiguity throughout the whole document. And um, and then now you have a four-decade-old history of court decisions and policy and all of that that has people in the mindset that this is just normal. This is the right way to operate. They've totally built a wall, a legal wall, mm-hmm. around us. And, I, and from a document that was supposed to be inclusive of all three parties... And, you know, and it was like, if you're going to change anything, you can do it with the agreement of both tribe and state. That's, that hasn't happened. No. And, you know, that that's to me, when I read the document, there's no question, you know, there are some things that were given up there. Um, but when I read it, it's littered with language that really is trying to accomplish finding common ground, forcing people to talk and find common ground. Um, but co- but that hasn't happened. But I think that the, uh, you know, the state has really um, just never came to the table in that spirit. They never had to. No. And that's the other thing, you know, the, the, the political kind of um, weight the tribes have, and we're getting better at it, but it's, um, but it's really um, the less political damage for public officials is tends to be the direction they go in and the tribes have haven't been able to cause the kind of damage politically to people that don't do the right thing in these areas um so that's been challenging so we've been trying to build a lot of uh a lot of mechanisms to help us in this argument not not help us uh just win everything we want but help us get a seat at the table when these things are happening and and really get um listen to and try to find a way to for everyone to roll their sleeves up and find a common ground product but um but right now if you're getting everything there's no incentive for you to negotiate yeah so when i think that uh, what we've done right in the past i don't know maybe five years or so is to reach out and to get allies and talk to people Mm -hmm. and explain what's going on from our perspective which we haven't really had a, you know a, a chance to do no exactly i mean uh, 
I think it's been um, extremely uplifting over the past five or six years to see um, just the amount of people that have come to the table and said, you know, how can we be helpful? And not just saying it, you know, people have written op-eds and they've tried to, written letters. Just last week, the delegation was telling me that they got dozens of support letters in the, the appeal of the tribe, um, also on the EPA water quality standards stuff. And, um, you know, coalitions and partnerships with the Nature Conservancy, for example, with, um, you know, a whole host of organizations that are supporting tribal issues and, um, or a more cohesive relationship. You know what? That brings to mind the, uh, the River Restoration Project, mm-hmm. which was huge. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's an example, really, of what can be done. And we talked about this. I was going to raise this, is that, you know, we, did, we had the Howland Bypass Ceremony the other day. Yeah, I saw that. Almost 300 people there, and from all walks of life. And I remember um, Town of Howland officials were there. And this was a very contentious project at first with, you know, they wanted to keep their dam and they wanted the impoundment and they wanted, um, and there was a lot of concern. But people found a way to fix it. You can keep your dam. If you you had taken the tribal attorneys and the attorneys from Howland or whatever, we'd still be fighting over that. Probably. (laughs) But I think, you know, with all of these partners, um, we were able to figure it out. And... I think it's a model for what can happen if people truly are trying to reach. And they were multiple interests. You know, they were energy interests. They were economic interests. They were cultural interests. They were a whole host fishery interests, all of that. Um, and with all those interests at the table, they found a way to get a project done that met the needs of everyone. And it can be done. It can be done everywhere. It's just a matter of uh, people wanting to do it. It's, it's working together and it's inclusiveness. It's not like everybody focusing on one little tiny control issue. Mm-hmm. You know, bigger than that. It is, and you know the, um, and I think you know, I don't know what's wrong with saying. I mean, we say it a lot, um, but they think we're just whining about results. And but the, the. I don't know what's wrong with just saying this doesn't work. It's not working. Clearly, doesn't work. And um, we'll. Uh, and I think just saying, well, nothing will ever work. You know, in this relationship is is just really um, not genuine, and and it's it's just not appropriate. But I think that um, there is a way for everybody to figure this thing out and try to work forward in a more cohesive uh, fashion. But you know. I think um, institutionally it is so ingrained that um, it's going to be hard to... Uh, so I, I think you get three-quarters of Maine citizens to, to subscribe to that. They would say, yeah, let's... Um, but you can't get eight people in Augusta to agree to it that are the decision-makers. And so, um, so again, you know, as you know, in the legislature, you know, we, um, you know, we have... A majority of people in the within the legislature that are extremely supportive sure. and try to do the right thing and it just seems like we get bogged down in committees when the attorney general comes in and testifies against us gets everybody knotted up on you know what the law is and isn't sure. when that's a body that actually can make laws and change laws and so sure. the I mean, and the thing is you know you spend months and months negotiating going back and forth and you come up with 
an agreement, mm-hmm. and you bring it to the committee, and all of a sudden, the attorney general's there, and there it goes, right out the window. Well, that's the other thing, you know, and, and they just don't participate. And you have, um, you know, let's just look at this River case and look at, I mean, one of the things in the appeal, too, and it's all public document. You can look, uh, the judge sends out a mandatory settlement talk period that takes place in every court process. And um, they immediately wrote back, said, we don't, we don't see the value in this and we're not going to. We don't find that it would be productive, and we're basically asking the court to waive it. We don't want to, they don't want to sit down in any settlement talks with the tribe. Now, I agree that would be a difficult conversation, but uh, we were ready to try if if they would. But um, so the court granted it, and so there'll be no settlement talks in the case. With the EPA water quality standards, I was on those calls. I was on those calls when. uh, um, they were consulting with us and very clear with us. We're going to consult with the state, and then we're going to ask what the common ground is here. State refused to talk to them, wouldn't talk to us, and flat out told them, we're not talking to the tribes about this. If if we talk to the tribes, it's going to create a standing we don't think they have. And that's and that's the mindset. In the paper this morning, there was the issue of the, uh, the tribal representatives uh, leaving the state legislature. I find it kind of ironic because we actually, we actually, uh, <laughs> we actually walked out uh, May 26, 2015. It's uh, over a year ago, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's making the uh, front page of the Portland Press uh, today, a year later. Uh, let's let's just talk about that tribal representation. What's your views on that? Sure. So I think. Um you know, as you mentioned last year, tribe made the decision to take a different approach and um, didn't see any value with us sitting there in Augusta and going through all the things we just talked about. I mean, at, at what point do we recognize we're in a very oppressive, abusive relationship? And what point do we stop expecting different results from that? Right. So we, um, so we had a great tribal conversation about that. The decision was made. We were tasked with trying to figure out um, how we were going to move forward with that position. And we brought a product to this past year's, um, just this past June, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a product on the um, on what we'd like to see going forward after talking to several people, um, past reps, um, you know, people within the tribe, et cetera. And, um, and it was decided that the tribe would um, create this ambassador position and it would be an appointed government relations position full-time and focus not just on state issues but local and federal issues as well and really try to carry out the tribe's agenda. And I, I think it's, um, it, it's a great approach because it really speaks to nation-building of the tribe and also... Um, is a more appropriate representation. It creates more accountability for a cohesive approach to these issues uh, between tribal leadership and and the position, and um, and we see that it can be extremely effective. It's it's a lot of work, but I think that um, it's going to be um, it's going to be a position that'll be extremely valuable to the tribe. And I think, in the sense that it can um, not be so 
kind of tied to one system. It can um, really focus from a tribal perspective, and um, and we're excited about it. So yeah, I mean, from my perspective, uh, being a former uh, representative, that position, uh, tribal rep, was very uh, weak. In that you know there was no uh, vote in mm -hmm. the state legislature. You were just you were there, uh, sort of window dressing, um, and you were really not not taken really totally seriously as seriously as you should be. Um, and it's like being very it's like being handicapped, mm -hmm. and uh, it was tough. But gee, I mean, you had no vote there, and uh, you'd come back to the the tribal council and you had no vote there <laughs> so you were kind of like in the middle and that was a very weak uh, weak position in some respects but in other respects it wasn't that that weak tough to explain yeah uh, but it I just think it, this is the this is the right decision uh, it makes us puts us in a stronger position uh to advocate for our issues on two on two different levels, I think that's great. Yeah, and I think you know it just. I guess an example. I mean, the thing is, is that process, as you know, down there is very. Um, it's just doesn't work for us. I mean, you have the. Uh, you have just the mere fact of putting bills in. So if you. You know, our people ask us all the time. You know, why didn't we know about that? Oh, why didn't we didn't approve that. We were so. What people don't realize is is that when we put these bills in, and it was never more evident to me than a few years ago, when we had a bill in front of legal and vets for bingo-based technology, and the um, they were really like, "Well, you can use them," despite the economic explanation of why we needed them for those days um, and all of that, they were creating a product that just wouldn't work. So we'll give you a few machines for a few days. That's it. Right. And so that, I don't even think that was going to pass in the end, but we ended up, um, uh, so we just said right in the committee, we said, look, let's just kill this bill because it does nothing. But there was such an appetite to give us something we didn't need. Um, that basically we were told in that hearing, you know, this is our bill now. It's not yours. Yeah. Once it's in the process, this is our bill. And uh, we're not going to kill it. And we'll, so um, so that just doesn't work for sovereign governments to work <laughs> in a system like Absolutely that. Absolutely not. And what, what else doesn't work is when you, you have your tribal chiefs come in to testify or to talk to the committee. And, uh, you know, they're treated like the ugly stepsister put in the back of the room for three or four hours and then they're insulted when they come up to the mic I mean uh, no that's not going to work no and I always felt like you know the down there that um, I shouldn't be there but then you're always on the other side of things like if I don't go my disservice in the issue you know there's some important issues and so um, so yeah I mean it was and it's funny when we do start to get acknowledged down there. It's only because somebody let them have it about it, and they're sure. paying attention to it now. So I think that um, it wasn't an ego thing for me at all. It was more um, in a system that already marginalizes and diminishes our governmental status, um, 
Should a tribal chief be sitting in a committee for three hours groveling for time? Exactly. And so I, um, uh, I saw it as more um, representative of how we were seen as a government and as the face of the government more than about myself. But I think that, um, which is why you don't see governors sitting in there. And, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and yeah. so I think that, um, um, so yeah, the whole process was really just set up to... It was demeaning. It really was. It was almost like you were an Elks Club coming in, right? Yeah. It was just it, a special you know, interest. You rep with no, with no vote. Mm-hmm. You're sitting there in committee and everyone's voting and uh, the question's put out there and you, you just, you're just sitting there. Everybody's raising their hands, yes or no. Mm-hmm. And you're like a bump on the log, just sitting there. And I mean, how many times, you know, and you'll see it in that process, which is mind-numbing to me because we would get crucified for this. But if you, in the middle of the issue, as you're debating it, you know, you ask for a break and go caucus, right? Mm-hmm. And then come back and vote. And so that the... Work and try <laughs> and um, I think that... Um, and then the vote doesn't go your way. You don't even know what happened, right? So the, um, well, what happened is they went back well, they had their and worked it out. Yeah. Was like, you know, the chair says, look, this is what we're going to do. I want you all on the same page. And they go back out and mm-hmm. they do it. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's really frustrating. And I think that, um, so for us, it was about um, really, you know, you can get thrown under the bus only a number of times. <laughs> well, you know, I've seen legislators, you know, I've seen... Yeah, but they would use our issues back and forth to to uh, to make deals on you. Mm-hmm. you look, you know, you, you, vote, you don't vote for this Indian thing, I'll vote for yours. Mm-hmm. They did that all the time. We were the mm-hmm. political football in the room here. Yeah, and, you know, and, uh, and I never quite understood, you know, where our government-to-government relationship existed there. You know, sometimes you're in Judiciary Committee. Other times you were in Legal and Vets. Other times you were in wherever, fisheries. and But other times you're in the governor's office. Sometimes you're in the attorney general's office. You just don't know. There's no, there's n- nothing within that system that has been created, and I mean nothing, that focuses on a comprehensive relationship with tribes. Yeah. And they destroyed what they had uh, when the land claims uh, went through. Mm-hmm. They did have a Department of Indian Affairs, you know, was not great, but it focused on Native issues. And then later on, I think they had a, a joint standing committee on, on uh, tribal issues, and they dissolved that. So it was just nothing. Yeah, and I mean, even like most states now will will have somebody in the governor's office that is just dedicated to Native American issues. And and used to, even, you know, 10 years ago, there was a, there was a position in the governor's office that dealt with uh, minority and disadvantaged communities, right? right? right. And so... And it's just systematically gone away, and you know, if you. But see, they don't want to do that. They don't want to create a, a position in the governor's cabinet that deals directly with the tribes, because that gives us a sovereign government-to-government mm-hmm. relationship. They don't want to do that. No, and I, I mean, I think again, it's another sign of being very careful about how they appear to be viewing tribal governments, and I think yeah. that the, uh, you know, the. Settlement Act is very clear if you read through it. 
in the Senate committee report. It's an enhancement of sovereignty. It's um, going to make the tribes forever free of any state interference when it comes to internal tribal matters and all of that. Well, you know, people will point to that and say, you know, you're more sovereign now than you've ever been. And it's, eh, not really. I mean, there was, uh, um, yeah, if you want to compare it to 100 years of being under boarding schools and Indian agents and all of that stuff and say we're a little freer today, then fine. But the, the from a um, self-governance standpoint, I mean, from 1976 until 1980, we were under total federal jurisdiction. That was the best time. I mean, we should have stayed there. <laughs> yeah, a well, lot I mean, of us we were feel that, you know. Operating, we, we were operating a gaming operation. We had um, total decision-making authority. There was no beyond the Major Crimes Act and all of that stuff. There was no um, law enforcement um, influence on the reservation. It was the tribe was totally self-governed during that. So you have to ask yourself in 1979, why would everybody yeah. already federally recognize? You know, here's the problem. We didn't, we didn't know. We mm -hmm. didn't realize how much freedom we actually had mm -hmm. there. You know, we were just focused on something else. We were mm -hmm. focused on the land claims, and we mm -hmm. had to get that uh, official federal recognition first. And while we had it, we were just moving on to the, to the settlement. Mm -hmm. And we just didn't see it. Well, again, you know, you're coming off being wards of the state all those years and abused it. Like Stockholm, uh, yeah. Stockholm, what do you call it? Syndrome. <laughs> but you, you know, you get federally recognized in 1976. That came with all the federal. A lot of people get confused, say the Settlement Act brought all the federal programs. Yeah, yeah. That didn't have anything to do with it. And so the tribe. Um, the tribe really had no incentive to give up all their self-governing authority, and I don't believe they ever did. I think it was a, um, it was carefully crafted language that um, I think they very astutely knew that they could use later against the tribes. Well, I think they were deceptive mm -hmm. in, in making that document and wording it, um, and I think their actions have shown that. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of flawed as to why we can't abrogate that thing because it certainly uh, hasn't done what it's supposed to do. No. And the, um, you know, they'll all say, well, you know, those tribes, they just it's all a conspiracy theory thing. You know, to totally ignore four decades of experience under this thing, experiences, and, um, you know, the evidence is there. And I don't know how you get anywhere else by looking at it except saying that it's been grossly unfair. Not only unfair, it's been devastating to the tribes. And um, and basically, uh, you know, getting them to agree to even look at the Settlement Act. I mean, we have a challenge with our delegation, just getting them to agree to allow it to be looked at. And so, um, not all of them, by the way. It was a very good one down down there in Portland. So um, that is extremely open to um, having these discussions. I mean, I think she just, you know, I'm talking about Representative Pingree is, is saying basically, you know, what's wrong with having a conversation about what's fair and what's not here? Um, and I think we just got to get more people in that mindset. I don't know what the... It, 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 and I think it's further telling when somebody won't even let 
you talk about it. I mean, so it's, um, you know, if, uh, if you feel you're totally right on this thing, then let's just have a conversation. But. Yeah. Well, you know, I will say one thing with my time as a representative. The best governor, the most open governor that I dealt with, and I dealt with a couple of them, uh, was Angus King. Mm -hmm. And he was always willing to listen. He may mm -hmm. not agree, but he would always talk about it, and he'd always listen. And, uh, you know, he did sign the uh, education bill, which I think the tribes will always be thankful that he did that. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've had a couple of yeah. um, good people. And, you know, um, Senator King is, I mean, to be fair, is always accessible. He's always talking with us. Um, he prefers kind of a um, issue-by-issue approach to things. And... I think he finds it all really overwhelming to take on the entire document, you know, at once. And but I mean, to be fair to him, I mean, I think he's he's been accessible. He's worked with us through issues. They call and ask our position on things. Um, so you know, we've been appreciate appreciative of uh, building that relationship as well. I think, you know, we had, you know, the the Nipties situation and all of that. And I think that created some hard feelings, but, um, and that's, you know, a very serious issue, but, um, what nip did you want to explain that? Yeah, it was the, you know, the wastewater discharge case where the EPA delegated back to states and, um, the authority over that and the tribe obviously objected. That's when the paper companies foiled the tribes and it was just a big contentious case. And, you know, one thing I've learned though, is that, um, you know, these issues are really bigger than one chief, one governor. Um, there's a whole system of people that need to come to the table. It is. And so, you know, but I do take issue with people when they're in those roles, um, not taking the opportunity to, to at least try to address them. I mean, so when you look at institutions, I mean, they're made up of people, and people can um, play a role in changing history. And um, instead, you know, we have some officials that are happy uh, to repeat it. And I think that it's um, it's sad because it gives us the opportunity to really make our mark in the right way. And um, but you know, some people will justify the position and go to their grave thinking they were right. So it's um, it's a it's a frustrating process, and hopefully we can get some traction. So, uh, in summation, you want to just put stuff together for us? <laughs> yeah, I'll try. But I think the um, you know, the bottom line is um, through all of this discussion, we don't ever want anybody to think that um, the tribe is is looking to um some somehow be out here whining all the time and do that. these are real issues that really affect the future of the tribe and but what i do know is this we have um, an amazing group of people that work on these issues we also have a great government very stable government i'm sure we have our issues at times but i think the uh uh, the work we're doing now is is really having an effect on on the tribe uh, our federal work especially has been um, 
really well received and also we've created some just great friendships and partnerships um, not just with government officials and agencies and congressional folks but that entire community of lawyer lobbyists and um, just a whole host of advocates that work on this stuff every day so we've been able to really do a good job of elevating the tribe's governmental status um, in a host of areas you know our we're really proud of our tribal court and that institution and structurally where that's at, um, how we're addressing public safety within the community, social services, our health care system, housing. All of that stuff is um, um, really our signs of self-governance. And, and so, you know, as we continue to work on things like the ability to protect women from abuse, um, the ability to protect our lands from natural disasters and fires and floods and all of those things. Um, we're going to keep doing those things. We'll keep doing it. And, and, uh, and you know, we can't really control um, what the state gets upset at. I think we have, um, we have so much face in us as governments and as a state, you know, with opioid abuse and, um, you know, economic challenges and all of that, that, we really don't have time to to continue, you know, arguing about really infantile stuff half the time. We got real issues that we need to address, and we're just going to move forward in a self-governing way and do that. So we're um, so through it all. I'm confident that um, the tribe is going to start um, and has started to uh, walk and act like it says it is, and we're not looking for anybody to take care of us. We're just uh, asking people to get out of the way while we do that. Yeah. So you think that uh, the uh, tribal reps, um, elimination of the tribal reps, will probably give us more time on other issues, mm -hmm. or, or kind of spread that out and not have to, to fight with uh, minute state things all the time? Is that... Yeah, I think it, it does. I think it gives us a more focused approach to all the issues, too. Um, and I think that um, it, it allows us not to get bogged down in nonsense all the time. And I think the uh, um, the ambassador position will be able to focus on government, true government relations in an effective way all the time. Not one mechanism with one process, but... Um, really address these issues in multiple ways. The tribe's done a great job of building its uh, its legal representation at the federal level and the state level. We've been um, it, both from a um, law standpoint and also from a uh, political standpoint. We've um, we're involved in campaigns. We're doing at the national level and at the local level, and we're you know we we realize that it's. To break into that community and to be a player, we have to do that in a multitude of ways. And I think um, we're really starting to make headway with that. We're really starting to be seen as a partner in those things. And um, I think as we go forward with this position and with the tribe's approach in a concerted kind of way, it's going to make a huge difference. Well, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm your host, Anna Loring, and you've been listening to uh, Wabanaki Windows. I want to thank my guest, Kirk France, Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. Uh, and uh, the music for our show was by Rolf Richter, track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamlock. Thank you.